0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Looks like I'll be getting some emails. Uh, All right. there have been immeasurable discussions throughout history on what distinguishes man in our image-bearingness, uh, that we would say that we are the imago Dei, that we bear the image of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that you, to be human versus the other animals? What distinguishes mankind from that? Um, and thoughts upon thoughts upon thoughts have been cataloged about that. Most of them center around man's ability to reason, uh, and that in any kind of capacity. And last week, when we talked about our, our, our oaths, let your yes be yes and your no be no, we talked about Adam in the first encounter that we heard a yes be no. It wasn't actually a no, it was actually cow manure. Uh, and um, he lied to God. God said, did you eat the tree that I told you not to eat? And Adam said, it was this woman you gave me. Uh, really blaming God. So certainly, I think there is something, even in Adam's response, that distinguishes mankind from the rest of the animals. Uh, And some have argued that the greatest distinction between mankind and animal kind is this very thing right here, our ability to lie. Uh, Man has the ability to say no. That's different from all the other animals that were given in the garden. Man was given something to resist. The ability to trust God, the ability to reason out, this is good for me because God has told me, and this is not. No other animal is given that reason, that capacity to resist. And of course, as you may or may not know, uh, throughout history we have not done that well. But even in the most uncivilized of civilizations, even with religious background, uh, there have been practices of resistance to various appetites. Because even in our soul, part of our DNA, the way we were created, mankind is given the ability and the conscience to resist certain desires in order for better desires to take root. Does that make sense? Historically, we have called these virtues. Even ancient Greek history, there were virtues. And it was pretty crazy back then, but there were still virtues. When I was in seminary, my, my, uh, my wife taught, which is before any of these graduates today were alive. Uh, when I was in seminary, my wife taught uh, eighth grade reading. And I'm going to advocate right now that my wife was not paid nearly enough to teach eighth grade reading. That said, one time, because I don't know why, we decided to chaperone a junior high dance. And the DJ at this dance played, not once, but twice, the song with the lyrics, You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. Let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. There are... I would encourage you not to look that song up and don't give it any more plays. This is in Texas, by the way. There are a lot of complicated and difficult messages to untangle today when we talk about lust, when we talk about all that's involved in that. Um, there's gonna be some hard conversations about our views of sex, morality, justice, the imago Day, porn, desire, all of those things, and I want to start all of it with this, with this. I want you to keep this in mind. There is redemptive guilt and there is toxic guilt. There is redemptive shame and there is toxic shame. And I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more at the end. My hope and prayer, and I'm gonna believe that this is Jesus' hope and prayer, that I think this is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, is that we would experience re, uh, repentance that would lead to redemption in any of these places today rather than simply feeling bad about ourselves. Rather than simply feeling, woe is me. Um, there is a, a possibility that you may feel some wounds today, that you may feel hit hard, that you may feel some areas of toxic shame, you may feel anger, you may feel, I don't know. Um, And I want to tell you that wounds are not exclusively bad. They can provide the opportunity for healing. Okay? You guys are not very responsive today. That makes me concerned. Some of you are just like grabbing the popcorn. See how the pastor's going to dance around this one all right so with that let's get into scripture this is what jesus says you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart this is again jesus bringing ethics from above what is written in the law jesus has not come to abolish the law in any way shape or form if we don't know the law we don't know jesus he's not coming to abolish the law in fact Really, here, Jesus isn't even adjusting the law by referring to internal motivation. This is is actually part of the original law given to the people of God. Something unique about the commandments given by God versus, versus the other religions of the day is that God does talk about the motive of the heart. He doesn't just say, be loyal to me and fight for me and win the land or whatever. Other gods, other ancient religions didn't really care as much about motivations. The God of Israel did. The commandments talk, they don't simply talk about external behaviors. The commandments say, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's internal motive. The great summary of the commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Those are internal motives. Um, and and uh, really, this is not even uncommon in rabbis of the day. A third century rabbi uh, said this, uh, Simeon Ben Lachish, Uh, who was known for his honesty and his virtue. He said, even he who visualizes himself in the act of adultery is an adulterer. So there are still parts of our world today where adultery is punishable by death. Um, There are parts of the world today where marriages are still arranged by families, and probably a lot more parts of our world than you would think. And adultery in those are akin to treason. This is not just betrayal of a spouse, it is betrayal of a family, probably two families. Um, However, mental fantasy is hard to punish by law. Something curious, there's still states today where adultery is illegal. I don't know if, you, if anybody ever gets charged on those, but um, mental fantasy is harder. It, you can't punish that by law. Uh, but I want to tell you, mental fantasy does its damage. Sin will do its damage. So the teaching of the, etern- of the internal and in our motivation was not uncommon, um, but it was still easy to justify yourself in front of others. I have been faithful to the law because I have not committed adultery, and you can't prove otherwise. But Jesus deals with the heart. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. So the language here is interesting. This does not mean that looking at a man or a woman and observing beauty or attractiveness is necessarily sinful. That's not what is at stake here. God made us to appreciate beauty. We are given eyes to see beauty. and to appreciate it. And I think it is okay, even in other human beings, to see and notice and appreciate beauty. To look with lustful intent, however, is more than just beauty. This is how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage in The Message. You know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those oogling eyes you think nobody notices, those also corrupt. Oogling probably could use some updating. (laughs) The term lust. So this is not simply to look. Uh, In Greek, there are several words for look. We just have look can mean a whole lot of things. But lust is a religious term, and lust has to do with desire. And again, every culture in history has had some kind of posture, even if the fact, I mean in the New Testament uh, time, uh, there was adultery, but most of it was temple adultery. So even there, they had like a religious, uh, I'm sorry, prostitution, uh, which was not considered adultery actually, but the temple prostitution was actually an act of worship. Every culture in history had some kind of posture toward healthy desires and destructive desires, especially when it came to the sexual desire of another human being. They weren't all great, uh, but whether it be for motivation, Uh, Whether it be the motivations of morality, or glory, or honor, or piety, or religious devotion, um, most cultures in history place a value on resisting taking an action on lust simply as an appetite. Our culture, in all of our progress, has tended to view any suppression of this desire of, of as sex as a, as a as a uh, an appetite. They we have tended toward viewing that as wrong and even harmful. Culturally, in in my age range at least, there is strong suggestion that we now actually define ourselves at the very core of our being as sexual beings. That that is our primary identity. And we're going to see here in a few minutes, sex, just like money and power, makes for a lousy God. So to lust, biblically, is an unhealthy desire. Genesis would refer to this. Genesis 4 says, like a lion desires its prey. What we see often portrayed in movies uh, and in books and commercials and wherever else, when people say, I love you, That can often be translated, not always, but often that can be translated as, I want to have sex with you. Lust essentially is making another human being an object to be used for my pleasure. This is not love, biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, love is when you give of yourself for the good of somebody else. When you build them up, when you sacrifice for their good. Lust is when we turn them into an object for me, to consume, to have my way with, for my pleasure, for my appetite. And how quickly noticing beauty can become an internal fantasy to devour. Second part of the language in this is, do you notice that this command seems to be directly directed mostly toward men? Anybody notice that? It's inferred. Now, there are a few things uh, that we could mention here that are not untrue, all right? In general, men tend to be more stimulated by visual, right? Is that fair? All right, in general, men tend tend to be more stimulated visually. Uh, that is certainly there, the differences between men and women in general. And this is not to suggest that women, you're cool with lusting all you want, it's the men that are in trouble. That's not what Jesus is, that's not the point that he's making here. Um, But there are definitely elements of justice in this sentiment. Deuteronomy uh, talks a great deal about the laws that have become misinterpreted in our day where we say, well, this is just looking down on women. Culturally, men had power in virtually every ancient world, uh, men had the power. The laws that are put forth in Deuteronomy, the marriage laws, the sex laws, uh, the divorce laws, were put in place actually to protect women so that men couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They couldn't just marry a woman and then discard her. They owed her money. They couldn't just have sex with a woman and discard her. They had to marry her. And you may think, oh, how come she had to get married? because he had money and land and property, and now he was obligated to her in that way. These laws in Deuteronomy are put in place to protect women. Um, and we're going to look a little bit more at that when we talk about divorce next week. Yes, we're going to talk about divorce on Memorial Day. So, look forward to that too. Uh, for lust, though, there, there, it is about justice. There was a common belief way back then, that women were responsible for men's lust. Thankfully, that's all gone now. We have names for that now, right? Victim blaming. There were several distortions of woman folly in Proverbs that suggested if a man was guilty of lust, it was at least partially, if not mainly, the woman's fault for dressing seductively, for presenting herself in a certain type of way. What Jesus says, men, is that it is not women's fault. Men, we are in charge of our minds and our hearts and the ways that we view women. And the ways that we dignify women. Some of you uh, may have been raised in what is now commonly called purity culture. Um, and I'm not going to have time to break all, all that down. But ladies, some of you were raised and have been put under the pressure to always watch how you what you wear and how you act, lest you cause your brother your brothers, to stumble." All right, now, let me give a little qualification here, a little clarification before we, especially as we are walking into 90-degree weather over the summer. There have been some trends where I feel like the way we're heading is it's going to be, within a matter of months, perfectly acceptable for women just to basically wear underwear in public and it's a new fashion trend. And I will tell you, I, that's not helpful. All right, hear me, that's, that's not helpful. Um, much like we talked about last week, I, I think that is a PR movement uh, where this somehow has become, and we're going to talk about porn here in a minute. Um, I'm blown away that porn is not a justice issue. Somehow this is a women's rights issue. Somehow this has become an empowerment issue. And I want to tell you, I think that PR is... Cow manure, thank you. Um, uh, and I would not be an advocate of that as helpful. That said, ladies, if you were raised under the burden and the pressure that it, somehow it was your responsibility to keep men from lusting, I want to tell you, Jesus says it is not. He would tell you, other words Women, you are responsible for how you conduct your heart. You are not responsible for the heart and mind of every man. Do you hear me? You are dignified, created in the image of God. You are not objects, and don't let a lusting man or a cow manure PR movement suggest that you turn otherwise. You are not objects. You are image bearers. And I'm sorry that following Jesus got so perverted as to put a constant blame and burden on you. And it's not just Christianity. Please know that. Very, it's very common in many religions for women to bear the brunt of men's lusts. There are ways you can help, uh, especially, again, especially in the summer. But men, we are given the charge to handle our minds, our hearts, our eyes, and our hands okay? Lust dehumanizes. Sex was created by God. It was created good by God to be vulnerable, to be intimate. We're going to look at like the, even the chemicals that produced uh, in our mind were created for fidelity and for pleasure, uh, to be naked without shame, to build trust, intimacy, and fidelity, to be enjoyed as a good gift from God, and to produce children. We're, we'll get into that at another time. But like everything good that God has made, there are parameters, lest we are tempted to turn good things into God's, which we are always tempted to turn good things into God. Fire. Fire is good. Fire provides light. Fire provides warmth when it's in the fireplace. When the fire is in the living room, it destroys. It gets out of hand. Anything that is taken out of its parameters can destroy. Sex is good within the parameters of a covenant relationship of marriage that God defines. But when it's taken out of those parameters, it destroys. It ceases to be about love and becomes about consumption. So how do we deal with this? It's pretty simple. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Any questions? <laughs> uh, and then you raise your hand like this. I have a question. Is this hyperbole? Uh, yes, you'll be happy to know this is hyperbole. Okay? Um, I'm really tempted to quote a pastor, but I'm not going to. Uh, Jesus is showing us just how Just how we looked at last week, how anger, when it's not dealt with, can actually fuel and become, this was two weeks ago, can actually fuel and fuel and fuel and eventually become murder in our hearts. Lust does the same thing. And here again, when Jesus is talking about hell, he's, I don't, he's, in these passages, he's not talking about an internal destination. He is talking about the reality of a life that leaves behind it broken, hurt relationships. Internal shame. That's what he's talking about. Your life will be hell. Um, I do find it encouraging, however, what Jesus doesn't say here. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. You shouldn't do it. Have you tried not lusting? How's that going? Jesus' answer here is fight. By the power of the Holy Spirit, fight and fight well. Jesus knows and understands, and even by design, every human being will have sexual temptation and sexual desire. The desire itself is not bad. He doesn't tell us to suppress our desires, He tells us to be in control of our desires not the other way around, to not be a servant of our desires. We are, in fact, not just mammals. We have the ability and the capacity and by God's grace, the power to resist disordered desires. And not only that, but we were actually created and designed for so much more. So how do you fight well? By God's grace, we resist the unhealthy desires, and we feed the healthy desires. We begin to practice these things. As Scott's lawn care would say, feed it! I love that commercial, sorry. For the positive, married folk, if you're here and you're married, touch each other often. Uh, Not sexual touch, not just sexual touch, just friendly touch. If you're married, Reach over and grab your spouse's hand. We talked about this at the marriage retreat. There may be like, uh, there may be touch aversion. There may be different things growing up and boundaries there. But you are, we are designed, this is part of like our fidelity and what binds us together. Good, healthy touch. Your brain, designed by God, produces oxytocin and vasopressin. When you touch often, both of these hormones naturally released by the brain are also used by big pharma to fight depression and anxiety and lower blood pressure. These are produced naturally in your brain when you touch. When we engage in physical touch, they are released in both men and women and they produce these kind of warm fuzzies that that reinforce security. This is my man. This is my woman. They were created uh, 20 20 seconds for a hug, 6 seconds for a kiss, and your brain produces oxytocin. They are bonding agents that solidify fidelity in a covenant relationship. Now, these are also released in sexual activity that is outside of a faithful covenant relationship. But rather than producing warm fuzzies, what they can produce is a sense of shame or dirtiness. And it's the brain's way of saying, I'm confused here. In addition, stimulation both from touch and from the eyes your brain also releases dopamine. Dopamine is the crack, right? That's what we want. Dopamine is the part of our brain that says this is pleasurable. And when dopamine is released initially in our brains, it just kind of goes, but eventually it finds a path and it begins to take this path over and over and over again until this path becomes our default way of going. And the more repetition that dopamine is released, the more clear the pathway. Both of these things, when they work together, they can work for both pleasure and fidelity. However, when they're taken outside of that context, when these produce shame, and you're looking for a a dopamine hit to compensate or cope with the shame, and the pathway of addiction has become the least resistance, it has been solidified, you go right back to the very act of shame that got you there in the first place to deal with shame. Welcome to addiction. Jesus is gonna tell us we need to deal with our eyes, what we take in, we need to deal with our hands, what we hold on to, what we, hold on to, what we touch. So I'm going to try to get super practical here at the end. Some stats and some plans uh, as, as to how we deal with this. And then talking about how we deal with the biggest, maybe the biggest issue in this realm, uh, which is porn. I'm hoping that I don't need to talk too much to you to convince you that porn is bad. Um, porn is bad. Even psychologists are acknowledging porn is bad. Um, It's it's damaging. It's destructive psychologically, emotionally, relationally. It's dehumanizing to women. It completely distorts reality. Uh, It can change the brain and the way you're wired. It can produce depression. It's completely and widely available and accessible. Thirty-five percent of all internet downloads are pornographic. It feeds sex trafficking. It's been referred to as modern day slavery. All right. We all good? We all agreement? Okay. So while realizing that it is bad, the shame and the stigma that goes along with this can make it really hard to confess, especially in the religious realm. And let me tell you this. Friends, brothers, and sisters, if you are fighting a porn addiction by yourself, you will lose. You will lose lose. Our enemy is brilliant and he's powerful. What happens is it will produce shame in you, which is actually appropriate shame. That is a proper response to see dehumanization and the sexualization and the objectification of women and men. That's appropriate. But then, If you don't deal with that shame and confess it before God and trusted community, it will cause you to take another route to deal with shame, a well-worn path that got you there. Find a friend and get this out. Confess it. That's a huge part of the battle. There are great resources. There are podcast studies, ways for, uh, for recovery groups, that will help bring it into the light, and not just like accountability groups. When I was, when I, when I was younger, accountability groups kind of became a way to swap porn sites, uh, and, and you never actually did anything. Um, there are ways to bring it into the light because it doesn't take long to form those pathways. Um, it can take about three to five years to actually reform pathways, to form new default responses, but it can be done and it can be done well, but it cannot be done without the Holy Spirit and community. As the church, we are called to minister to one another and to shepherd not only our own hearts, uh, our brothers and sisters, but also the next generation. Here's how kids are being affected by this. Um, Sex among teenagers is actually, uh, they say an all-time low. I don't know if that means all-time low, um, but it's actually low, it's down, I think close to 20% from the 90s, when some of us may or may not have been in high school. Um, But um, among uh, among high school students, it's actually falling uh, pretty fast. However, this is also a generation of students that tend to be very risk-averse. Driver's licenses are uh, getting later and later and later. There does seem to be an increase post high school graduation back to the norm and marriage is being put way off uh, and lots of other stuff to weigh. Porn however has been increasingly on the rise because it's just becoming more and more and more and more vastly accessible. Research by Common Sense Media, I'm going to read you some stats. Common Sense Media, I did, I'm always careful about where stats come from. Common Sense Media leans slightly to the left uh, and uh, I think it's funded by by like Bezos and company. So take that for whatever you want. Um, But I'm telling you that if you think, oh, these are just skewed. Uh, 73% of teenagers have viewed porn online. 15% said they saw porn for the first time at age 10 or younger which your brain has not developed to take that in. The average age for the first viewing is 12. 44% indicated that they watched porn intentionally. uh, 58% indicated they had encountered it accidentally. So I know these numbers don't match up, but but these are teenagers. 63% of those who said they had only seen porn accidentally reported that they had been exposed within the last week. In other words, porn is easy to accidentally happen upon on the internet. 67% said they felt okay about the amount of porn they watched. 50%, which I think this is a different category, reported feeling guilty or ashamed. Overall, 52% 52% of boy respondents, cis-boy respondents, what that essentially means is boys who were born boys. Uh, they, they identify as the same gender. 52% of cis-boy cis boy respondents said they had consumed pornography intentionally, compared to 36% of cis girls. However, teens identifying as LGBTQ+, nearly two-thirds said they consumed pornography intentionally. Here is a good stat of those who responded. 47% say, had said they had learned a lot about sex from a parent, a caregiver, or a trusted adult. 27% said that they had learned about sex from pornography. However, less than half, 43% of teenagers reported that they'd actually had conversations about porn with a trusted adult, But those who said they had had conversations, actually uh, the the high majority of them said that those conversations encouraged them to find other ways to explore their sexuality and learn about sex other than pornography. In other words, conversations with a trusted adult were good and helpful. My fear is that in way too many Christian households, this conversation, not only is it not had, but it's actually shunned. We don't talk about those things." To which you go right back to the privacy of your own room and explore those things. And this conversation can be had. It is had. For ourselves and for our kids, the goal, here again, the goal is not that we can live up to the law. The goal is not, are we good or are we bad? The goal is that we can experience the grace and redemption of Jesus where we have broken God's laws, and our hearts and our minds can actually be changed by the work of the Holy Spirit through confession, through, uh, through repentance, through hearing, God, here is my shame and my guilt, and hearing God say, I see it, I know all of it, and you are not rejected. You are loved. Now let's work on healing. Healing. Let me finish with this and give you an assignment for the week. God is not the cosmic killjoy looking to make sure that all the fun stuff is bad when it comes to sex. We are originally designed for fidelity, for faithfulness, for trust, for vulnerability, for intimacy. That's what we're designed for. Our brains produce that, and when it works together, it works brilliantly. We're designed for healthy intimacy. We're wired for that. And all that was designed good has been distorted by sin. In the case of sex, this can be a breakdown in trust, relationships, cultures. And now research is showing that abuse in sexual ways can even begin to alter your DNA from generation to generation. Please, We're, we are not a church of culture warriors, but please don't think this is harmless. Toxic shame convinces you to keep it silent, that you're the only one that struggles, that the cost will outweigh the benefits, and will keep you spiraling. If we say to that, well you we just need to do away with shame altogether, that just enables the addiction. Redemptive shame helps us to see where we are guilty but actually believe that God already knows and forgives and then to experience that love in a trusted community. Church, be a trusted community. Do not fall to the trap of being self-righteous shame mongers. Be a trusted community. When somebody repents to you, when somebody opens up and says, "Hey man, I struggle with porn." Rejoice. That has been brought out of the darkness and into the light. Hug them. Say, "Thank you for trusting me enough to tell me that." That's honorable. That's huge that somebody would risk rejection to tell you. This is where the enemy can be exposed and defeated. The enemy will not be defeated by you going, This time, I'm never going to do it again. You know how our enemy responds to that? Good for you. You show me. Come on, here we go. One week, two weeks. Oh, 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 I saw that. I saw it. Oh, but remember, you're never doing this again. Here we go then you do it again. He's like, oh man, I thought you said you weren't doing it again. Well, you can't tell anybody now. That's how our enemy works. But if you just notice him, he wants to disappear. Don't try to beat him. Notice that he's there. He's already been defeated. This is where healing can happen. This is where through repentance and faith, our neuropathways can be reformed, reshaped. God did not design us to consume others. God did not design sex that we could turn people into objects. God designed love for the good of others, that we would dignify our brothers and sisters as image bearers, that we could recognize and appreciate beauty without objectifying people, that we would build each other up, that we would fight well together for each other, especially when it's hard. Please know this. I am not preaching this from a pedestal. Please know that. Uh, I am in desperate need of the grace of God. I have a trusted community that I talk with about this stuff regularly. I do not in any any way trust myself with the vast open arrays of the internet without some kind of guard or warning. I have covenant eyes, which I like to call my redemptive shame, uh, on all my devices. And we fight this together. Here's your assignment. I learned more about, uh, I forgot who it was, maybe it was Flannery O'Connor. Somebody said, I don't know what I believe until I have to teach on it. I want you to research this as if you're going to have to teach on it. I want you to learn about these things for yourself, for your brothers, your sisters. Research this passage. Your friends, your spouse, your kids, our kids. If you don't have kids, we have kids here. And we all need your help. And when you research this, think about this. Account for your own needs. Account for your failures. Account for the hurts and wounds that you have experienced, that have been against you, Account for the grace that you need and have received? How would you teach about God's desire for love versus man's temptation for lust? How do you deal with shame? How do you deal with boundaries? What is helpful for you? What is good for you? What feeds you? How would you compel? Don't fall into the good and bad category. This is good, this is bad. What does God need to shape in you? How does God open us up? Study this. We are in a world that needs, we don't need any more finger-wagging or cancel culture. We are in a world that needs, when at all possible, compassionate, helpful, hopeful conversation. And by God's grace, he can work in you wherever you are to bring healing and freedom and joy and restoration. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you designed us good, that you designed these things good, that even the ways that our bodies are shaped and the, the, the things that our minds produce, this is for your glory. They wire us together. They wire us to you. When we learn that we can confess and be honest and you receive us with grace and mercy, we learn to do that more. And that's what brings change. Your kindness leads to repentance. Give us courage. Give us grace. Help us to find a trusted person to be able to confess. And I'll encourage this even in my prayer. If this is a deep wound, do not confess first to your spouse. Email me. Find a trusted friend. God, give us grace and mercy to navigate our culture. In some ways, we are far more broken, we have far more access, and in some ways, this is just another cycle. Help us to navigate what is true and good and honorable, to trust you more than ourselves, to be able to resist our disordered desires, to trust what is better and good for our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.